Have you smoked too much weed? Is your trip way too trippy? Have you, in fact, bitten off more edibles than you can chew? Well, have I got the book for you. Are You Too High is the new book by Brian Box Brown, the comic book artist and author behind many graphic novels, including the New York Times bestselling Andre the Giant, Life and Legend. Are You Too High is a hilarious and delightful guide that may help you or your distressed friend stop freaking out or at the very least make you laugh until smoke comes out of your nose. Are You Too High is in stores now or you can find it on Amazon or at netoco.net. That is N-E-A-T-O-C-O dot net. Well done, Scott. I have another book to plug before we start the show. You want to hear about it? Yeah. All right. This one's from Andy Davidson, the author of The Boatman's Daughter. It's called The Hollow Kind, and it's a jaw-dropping novel about legacy and the horrors that hide in the dark corners of family history. Narrator Susan James brings this gorgeous gothic fable to life, tracing the spectacular fall of a family haunted by an ancient evil. This audiobook is now available from Macmillan Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. But wait, there is more. We also have the Fango House ad to get through. Uh, I'll take care of that. In 1979, the first issue of Fangoria was released into the world. It's been over 40 years, and they are better than ever, with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horror's past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical, collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. Head on over to Fangoria.com right now to learn more and to, you know, subscribe. And while you're there, make sure to enter the promo code KINGCAST to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now let's get on with that show, shall we? (laughs) Hi. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. We're back this week with another pair of guests responsible for Hulu's brand new Hellraiser movie. And boy, are we excited to have them. This dynamic screenwriting duo is responsible for some of our favorite horror films from 2017's Super Dark Times to 2020's The Night House to, yes, indeed, David Bruckner's Hellraiser. They are here today to talk to us about a Stephen King novella that we have never tackled on the show before, 2008's. N, which began its life as a multi-part graphic video series before finding its way into King's Just After Sunset collection. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Ben Collin and Luke Piotrowski. Ben, Luke, how are you doing today? Hey. I just want to say, uh, the, yeah. the ice is going to break. <laughs> We're doing well. We've heard that one before. <laughs> I, I got to be ex- claim credit for that one. That, that was... Uh, uh, Kind of an inspired moment. I don't get, prop myself up too much, but I, I'm very proud of that intro. And that's something that, that mm-hmm. I threw together and sent Scott's way, like right at the very early stages of us uh, coming up with the show and yeah, liberally. That is, that is this show's lock the gates. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's our Mark Marin. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, yeah, a voice check. This is Luke, by the way. I, I'm sorry. I botched that uh, with. <laughs> 
Yeah. No, it's all good. This is Ben speaking, by the way, and I'm 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 happy Excellent. to be here. I, I I'll go ahead and admit I'm a I'm a virgin, you know, to this thing. I've never uh, listened before because I'm a really bad podcast listener, honestly, these days. But I am a big fan of both of you guys on Twitter, so you know, uh, it's really cool to be here. Well, awesome. It's pretty much the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of what uh, I figured. Little... I kind of, I kind of yeah. hoped so. But let me get to hear your beautiful voices. I didn't know how like you know robust and and uh, you know virile you both sound. It's it's mm. impressive. Go on. Well, yeah. we are pretty virile. That's that's true. Um, and... Surprisingly, shockingly, so actually, <laughs> super badass uh, is another uh, good descriptor here. Um, and speaking of which, <laughs> you guys must be having a great weekend. You know, we we ran an episode with David last week uh, before Hellraiser came out. And now yeah. uh, it's been out uh, for, what, 24 hours now? Thereabouts. Yeah, officially. Uh, people like are that, seeing yeah. it, enjoying it. Uh, what are, you know, how are y'all feeling? I, I'm, I feel like I'm flayed and leaning against the wall and, and writing in my own blood. I'm like totally <laughs> a basket case. Even though it's mostly positive it's still just like so surreal and you know nighthouse comes out and you know the only people that are going to watch nighthouse are people that are like sort of seeking out that movie they want to see that movie but like there are so mm -hmm. many eyes on hellraiser and there's so much pressure to deliver and it means so many different things to so many people that i've sort of in, a, in an unhealthy way been like what's what's our tomatoes like uh, what are people saying and it'll be like you know five good things and then one bad thing and the one bad thing is like oh fuck we ruined it you know <laughs> Uh, I, I do want to say, get, getting this out of the way, I th think it was the funniest fucking thing in the world. We showed, well, I was there at, at Fantastic Fest when you guys did <laughs> the thing. I wasn't in your theater, so I didn't get to bathe in your your presence. But uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, is that we kind of knew the secret screening was given away by the fact that the Disney rep was there for uh, any of the mm -hmm. people. Uh, and he stayed there because they showed um, uh, Werewolf by Night. Is that yeah. that's the name yeah. of the whole thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they showed that and then he stayed there for a few days and was just like, okay, so yeah, the Hellraiser is gonna be the next secret screening. Um, and there's nothing funnier to me than getting the email from the press rep going like the you know, Hellraiser, but it's the same person that sends like Encanto and <laughs> you know, all these Disney things. And it was uh, it was the most hilarious fucking thing in the world. Because you watch that movie and I mean it's not Disney's Hellraiser, it's Hellraiser, you know, it's not Hulu's Hellraiser, mm -hmm. it's Hellraiser. Um so I just wanted to get that out of the way. I thought, you know, it's a weird like inside baseball thing, but from the uh press perspective it was really funny to uh to see all those emails lots of folks in. online excited about pinhead being a disney princess now yeah <laughs> can you <laughs> i mean i mean it's definitely it's definitely funny and it's one of those things because like for a while there when luke and i were coming up in hollywood like you know you you go to general meetings that amount to nothing but you know you sort of have like a studio punch card in your head of like oh well i've been to, we've been to paramount three times and we've been to this and then you know you start working for different people but we never in a million years like and Disney was not a company we really met with. We didn't think they'd have anything to do with us. So to have sort of fallen backwards into both Nighthouse and Hellraiser ostensibly being Disney movies is like very, very funny. I mean, I think it's funny for everybody, but you know, it is cool because it's not, there wasn't like they, it's not like they stepped in and said anything, you know, it was, it was cause it was part of the acquisition thing, you know? So in some ways we got, we got, we benefited, I think from, the lack of oversight or supervision that probably would have come from like uh, a company in a more stable time, which I think is, you mm -hmm. know, his, that happens a lot in Hollywood. They'll, in different, they'll you know, all ways. belong to Disney someday, 10 years yeah. from now. 
I got the impression before the movie came out, like in the months leading up to it, that Disney was, I don't know, it seemed like they were handling this one. They were keeping it under very tight lock and key. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there were there there was a point where I I reached out to y'all and David about doing like a group uh, interview, like a total and, and, you know, probably one of, you know, my ridiculous interviews that I did or something with just like softball questions, not like, you know, an in-depth interview about this thing to uh, for Fangoria. And um, and it just didn't work out. And and the reason that I, I recall was just like you know, yeah, we can't really talk about it right now. Um, and well, m- maybe later. And, yeah. and I, and I just got mm-hmm. the, between that and the fact that, you know, uh, a trailer showed up later than I would have expected. I think there was, I think there was the perception from some people, myself included that, I don't know. It just felt like they were trying to keep a lid on it, but you're saying that's not the case at all. No, I mean, I remember when you reached out to us and we all wanted to do it. And then we were like, okay, let's just double check with the person. And they were like, mm, maybe later. And then I think just later just never happened. And it was like, I don't really gotcha. understand why in terms of the trailer and stuff. It's, I think it's the streaming model of like, they want to keep it in the zeitgeist. And so they didn't want to release anything until this is very collapsed window, which is, as I understand it, just has a lot to do with, you know, theaters, you're, you're building buzz a year in advance with streaming. It's like, we want them to know that this is coming and then be able to get it almost immediately. And that makes sense. Yeah. That's sort of how they play. I don't know if that's wise or not, but that is the strategy. Well, and to be, and like I said, to be fair, I think it is like, you know, if we're going to be, be, you know, give some credit to our, you know, overlords at Disney is like, like I said, they, they did inherit this movie to some degree, you know, in, in a way. And I think like to their credit, I mean, to Hulu's credit, like, nobody else in town knew what to do with Hellraiser because it's not like, you know, I mean, I don't want to like say anything out of school, but it was not an easy movie to get people to believe in because of just like, you know, the, the sort of controversial notoriety, I guess, of the franchise and stuff. So I think that like for a lot of reasons, you know, I, I will like, you know, go easy on Disney for kind of not being maybe 100% sure how to handle this movie all the time. But I agree with Luke that the goal to me seems to be, you know, making Hulu sort of like with Prey and then this, that it's almost like it would be cool if this was where you got cool genre franchises on this kind of like streaming schedule where, you know, like that's the installments as opposed to theater, which, you know, everyone wants to go to the theater, but I get why for weird movies like Hellraiser, like I'm kind of happy for it not to be dependent on box office. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I don't think that that would be necessarily kind. It never has been. So I don't think it's like, I'm glad we're not put to that test. And if that means kind of getting the weirdness of the streaming reality, like coming into focus for these big companies, like eh, at the end of the day, we still got to make the movie that, you know, I think was pretty close to what we wanted to make. And I think that that's kind of, you know, you got to lean on that anyways, that if, if in the sort of like confusion, we got away with more, I'll accept the kind of confusion on the back end of trying to figure out what to do with it as long as the movie got out there. And it is now. And that's the thing I really, and I think like Luke said, most of the responses have been very positive and that's been really gratifying because it is, it's something we worked on. I mean, emotionally we've been working on this movie for a decade, but like the legitimate like employment of this particular project started in like beginning of September, 2019. And so we've been working on this nonstop up until basically like a week before the Austin screening. I mean, like that, it was just a nonstop reality of our life. Mm-hmm. We were just like, you know, it's us and Dave 
like for like such a long time making this movie and you know it is gratifying and even if even with all the weirdness i think having it come out and having people see it and you guys like it and stuff like yeah it's been it's been crazy for sure but 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 cool for sure that was I the think, big win. Was was we knew that we had to make Wampler happy, and no, it was honestly, <laughs> honestly. I see you getting hyped on Twitter, and and it was like, oh shit, pressure's on. So I was so relieved. I think I got out of uh, seeing Smile and like checked Twitter and saw that you had uh, it had been able to see a screener and. Uh, and got the thumbs up and was like, okay, thank God we did it. <laughs> well, because wait, because remind me, Scott, were you, you were part of like, there was a weird little period in Twitter history where like, when I think around the time this iteration of the Hellraiser movie was announced, where I made some reference to our past in pitching on it. And I want to say you were one of the people that kind of like jumped on that and retweeted it and stuff and sort of got that like the current Hellraiser conversation kind of started. Am I wrong about that? I feel like you were part of that sort of, there was a couple people that were like excited about trying to like see, or it was maybe before this one was announced or something. I can't remember. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, vaguely, you know, it's, it, I, I don't have strong memories about, uh, anything I tweet, um, you know, <laughs> after about a 24 hour window and I forget most of it, but it does sound like me. And I'm, I've historically been a, uh, a Hellraiser guy. And there was a point where right after we launched, um, the King cast where Russ Fisher and I were talking about um, doing a, doing a Hellraiser podcast. Oh, and we, wow. had, we had, we had formatted, we had figured out it would be a limited show with maybe I shouldn't lay out what the fucking game plan would have been or something, <laughs> but we had it, we had it all figured out. Like, this is how we'll do it. And the, you know, these are the people we would go after to guest on it. And, you know, um, that was, I remember that us being really hot on that idea for a while, but um, Russ had, had had just had a kid and then all the shit happened with Cinestate and that was still, you know, yeah. sort of, yeah, this it, was around was, that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were thinking of it as a thing to pitch to what that version of the Fangoria podcast network. And so it was like a number of wrenches got thrown in its gears and then the King cast sort of took off. So it was, it was easy to just sort of back burner it and say, maybe we'll get around to it. But I am, I have long been talking about Hellraiser stuff on, on, on Twitter. Well, that's, and- that's, that's kind of what I was getting at is that your enthusiasm was an animating factor, I think, to some degree, like with, with the cultural awareness or the, like of, of the, of the reality that there could be a new one is my memory. Mm-hmm. And so ever since it's been announced, your enthusiasm and you're like, you know, sort of loving kind of bullying about making sure it's, you know, horny enough and this and that, I think, you know, it really was a thing that Luke and I did start to see you as somebody we wanted to please because it was like, well, you know, there's only, you know, I mean, that's a very Stephen King ideal reader, you know, kind of thing. But I, I do think with with a movie this complicated in terms of fan expectations, right? Like, you know, because Luke and I are yeah. fans of the franchise. We've watched all of them. We've been trying to get hired by various different people or, or you know, to do Hellraiser adaptations over the years. This is something we put a lot of thought into. And, you know, fans, what we've learned in that time is that everybody who loves Hellraiser has their own kind of love of it in their head and their the, the things that mean something to them are very important in particular. And you can't really know that. And that when you make something you're engaging with all those people's little inner worlds. Right. And so we can't know everybody's desires or expectations and we certainly can't cater to them, but it, there is something nice when you can identify anybody who seems to have a cognizant, like, like a recognizable, uh, 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 you know, 
taste or, or appreciation. Okay. Well, yeah, where I'm like, I'm yeah. like, okay, if we can please that guy, because I think I can relate to to that guy, and I think I understand you know, like, well, we, maybe we're aligned to some degree on what, you know, the possibilities of this are or whatever he'll understand. So it does help, I think, in a way when you can identify, and there's different people in my life or, you know, Luke and I's lives that maybe we talk about or don't talk about that have that sort of role in the various things we made. But I guess it's a long way of just saying, thanks for your support because it it does matter. And, 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 you know, we're not saying like, oh yeah, we read everybody's like, you know, criticisms or enthusiasms all the time but you know when something cuts through we we do hear it and it's like yeah we're, we're really gratified to know that everybody who likes the movie likes it but particular people it does mean a lot so yeah so this well, is probably a bad yeah. time for me to tell scott that uh he i didn't send him your hellraiser i sent him a screener of hellraiser judgment I will go to bat for judgment. Like half of that <laughs> no, movie we, is, you is and really I tweeted cool. about that years ago. I remember this now. You, you were the one that got me to watch that one. Cause I was like, <laughs> yeah, that was really funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh well, the, it, it just, I, and I, I know I've said this before, like on Twitter and, you know, certainly when I reviewed it, but what I love about judgment is, well, everything that takes place in hell in that movie is really fucking cool. You know, there's that extended opening uh-huh. where like the uh, the the child molester is being put through his paces by the auditor, which is a new uh-huh. character that I really liked. Uh-huh. And, you know, the the imagery in it, it looks like a fucking, you know, like someone fed a bag of meth to a Nine Inch Nails video. Yes, for and sure. Uh-huh. It's, it's so fucking over the top and grisly. Like my I my then wife, like got up and walked out of it you know when or and like, that was it. like out of the living room while i was watching it like during that sequence I was like nope 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 um and then like a, a, a huge portion of that movie deals with like the bureaucracy of pinhead uh-huh. like managing hell and yeah. that was that was such a fucking funny thing to me and you know uh but also super interesting i loved all of that shit the the stuff with the cop and investigating and blah blah, blah. i i well, it, you know, it I, I was flatlining whenever that was happening. A string of those, like it was actually written to be a Hellraiser movie. So, you know, budget limitations and all those things aside that, you know, at least it was somebody being able to kind of no, this, totally. this whole movie, this whole narrative is crafted to exist within this yes. world. Not as the open secret of a lot of these other ones are just, you know, spec scripts that that existed in the dimension drawers that just kind of yeah. had shoved into them or kind of got retrofitted in that in that diehard mold of like, you know, here's an action script. Can we put John McClane in here? It just became, here's a horror spec. Can we put Pinhead in there? And, you know. Yeah, that was definitely the MO for a while. And that's, you know, one of the things I think that's worth being super excited about the new one for or about. I don't know. That was a terribly worded sentence, but um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it, when I was, wa- I was watching the screener and uh, with my roommate and, uh, like midway through it, I just turned to him and was like, it's so fucking great This that we have like that there's a new Hellraiser movie and I don't have to offer it with like 1500 qualifications. Like, right, right. Like mm-hmm. Judgment being a great example. Like, well, yeah, half the movie doesn't really work and that, but the other half is really cool, but it's also really grisly and you got to watch out for that. And also Doc Bradley's not in it and blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. like none of that on this one. I fully embrace this and to see that level of, of talent and budget being brought to bear on a Hellraiser movie after mm-hmm. many, many, many of them that did not have any of that attached to them uh, was just such a fucking relief. And my head is really off to you guys. And I, I hope that this leads to 
to more movies. Wouldn't so. that be nice? Yeah, Wouldn't that be, would be interesting? Yeah. Bitch. <laughs> you you know something I don't? What's going on? No, no we don't know anything. I mean, I, I, oh, yeah. we're not gonna like we're it's not gonna. Sounds pretty coy to me. I gotta say. No, I mean it, it's just it's just gonna it, like I think that that's the only thing that we're sort of it, we're in uncharted or sort of frontier territory rather. Like I I think the way that those kind of things are determined is different now. You know because like I said before when there's box office at play, I, I think everybody, you know, we all got used to being kind of amateur, you know, speculators or whatever on, on what that stuff would mean. And so I, I think when you had the numbers cranking in, you could sort of look at it and kind of do the math yourself and go, Oh yeah, they'll do another one. And I used to play that game all the time with the right. house movies. No, no, Cause you look at like, yeah, what those numbers, mean? you know, yeah. They'll tell us. We'll find out, but we all want to. So we'll see. I have a million more questions for you, but we, we've got to move on. I have, I have no, a feeling I, Hellraiser is going to come up as we're talking about this title, by the yeah, way. Yeah, oh, for there, sure. There, there's a lot of parallels. Yeah, here, I'll be but... finding I'll be finding those organic segues <laughs> as they occur. I do not have an organic segue to this, which is uh, I'd like to get both of your Stephen King origin stories. Um, Luke, oh, why don't yeah. why don't you kick it off? Yeah, this. Well, thank you, because this is my like uh, you know inside the actor's studio when he does the little thing at the end of like you know what when you get to heaven what do you want to hear God say? <laughs> yes. It's like I've been oh I've been waiting because I've been you know listening to the show since it since it started and uh, so I've got my Stephen King origin story ready. I've got I've got sort of two. I've got the movie one and the and and the book side. Oh, sorry, we're out of time. No, 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 please look very much looking forward to it. I love Buckingham. Please come back next week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, sorry to Matt Demon. All right, go ahead. Yes. Um, Silver Bullet was the movie. I remember being in my friend Scott's house and seeing the scene where the werewolf pulls the guy uh, into the floorboards mm-hmm. of the greenhouse. And I knew who Stephen King was, um, loved horror movies still too young to like be reading novels, but that was the first time I was like, this is a Stephen King movie. Oh, well, how did shit. you know? Well, wait, how did you know who Stephen King was? Just because of the zeitgeist, you know I mean? Like gotcha. you see the, the it book sitting on mom and dad's bookshelf and you see, you know, you just, you just know who that, you just know that name. If you're you see the, the American express commercial on TV, <laughs> probably. Yeah. 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 So like aware of him, but like, that's not for, for me. And then, like, this is a Stephen King movie. Oh, that's what it's like. So from that point on, it was, like, into the movies. But it really wasn't until seventh grade that I started getting into into reading the books and just reading adult books in, in general. You know, I was always a bit of a mm-hmm. reader, but but not necessarily stuff like that. And I remember we had a writing assignment in, in seventh grade to describe a, a location. So there, it's just, like, pick a place and just, you know, your bedroom or – the park and I described this like boogeyman dimension sort of inspired by like the real Ghostbusters cartoon of like, mm-hmm. like black and white checkered tiles and like Escher-esque stairs that are like going this way and that and the embodiment of fear lives there and like turn this assignment in and my teacher is do you read Stephen King and in my head I was mm-hmm. like I don't but you know what I fucking should why aren't I yet and so <laughs> it was like on to Night Shift and Skeleton Crew and all the short story collections and that was the year, that was 94, I think. So that was the year that the Stand miniseries came out. Mm. And it was like, this is an event in our house. We're going to watch a Stand miniseries. And that was when it was like, all right, I'm going to read this book. And so that was my first novel was The Stand. And and from that point on, it was like that that year was like, all right, this is who I am now. <laughs> it was nothing but Stephen King for, for a good long while to this day. Wait, the, the first one you read was The Stand? 
the first novel. I read the short story collections, but the first novel was mm. was the stand and the extended God. one. And I was reading these like Randall Flag dreams about you know the man in the canary yellow uh, speedo. Weird <laughs> I don't know what's going on, but I'm just I'm and all the stuff, stuff with uh, the kid and uh... oh my god, yeah, the kid stuff, yeah. No, oh boy, I guess just I don't have like I'm sure there's stuff there that was just like I don't, did not really understand exactly what was going on, but was just like rolling with it, right? Because uh, I read it again recently, and it's like yeah, holy shit! Like I, I'm trying to imagine <laughs> my son reading this book now. He's 14, and it's like. Wow, that, <laughs> that would be intense. Yeah, that's a yeah, lot. I, that's I a lot. I can't imagine that. Yeah, I didn't realize that was the like literally the first novel because that's that's also like a huge commitment at that age too. That's impressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, that's ben, like old and New Testament sized. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um, mine's mine's a little weirder, and I guess like at a younger age because like I'm a little younger than Luke's, but but we were like you know, aware enough at the time that most cultural things like sort of like we have common memories of them. But so mine was the it miniseries, I think Mm -hmm. was really the first thing because it was like, I'm trying to remember exactly why I was aware of it. But I mean, the, the memory I have is that the, the TV week, like insert that came in the newspaper, I, we grew up in South Atlanta. And so the, in the Atlanta journal constitution, you get the little TV guide thing for the week. And it had a big picture of Pennywise on the front of it. And mm-hmm. I I have vivid memories of it being like on the top of the TV and me like deciding to go from the kitchen into the TV room to walk up. No one else was in the room to just pick up the cover and stare at it until it scared me so much that I'd put it back and run away. And I remember like that image or, or just I heard someone talking about it. And so I, I started asking my parents like, well, what what is it? Like, what is this thing? Why, why is this scary to me? And, so, and I guess they like, I mean, I think it was probably a good idea, but in retrospect, it's still kind of crazy to me, but like they, what their solution was, was to like, they watched the miniseries and they told me the whole story. So I had like a, a like a, a sort of, you know, uh, remembering of it, you know, yeah. Told to me by like my mom, I guess, or my dad. Like I'm not sure. Maybe both. Tale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so I, I know that there was a period of time where I was like, because we went to uh, like church, like an evangelical Christian church, like when I was growing up. And so you have like the little prayer cards in the back of the pews, you know. And so I know there was a period of time that I was drawing pictures of spiders and clowns and stuff like that, <laughs> like like a little kid in a horror movie, probably. And I was putting them back in the thing a lot of times, so like other people were probably finding those. And I don't, you know, and I don't know if they read as like as disturbing as that might, but no one ever like talked to me, I don't think. But it was sort of the thing that like, I, I was really just obsessed and fascinated. And that became so it was identified to me at that age, I would have been five or six, that Stephen King was who this was. And so I would go to the bookstore and like, go find Stephen King books. And I would just like, look at the back of them. And once I could read, I could like read like the synopses on the back or things. And I would have my mom tell me the whole story so she told me all of the shining and then my tell dad the read four... Dolores Claiborne again <laughs> yeah, no I mean my dad read four past midnight and he told me the sun dog as a bedtime story and then a friend of mine had an old Polaroid camera that he had left in my room on accident like just like it was like some you know like we were playing soldiers or something and he had just this old like land camera that his dad had given him and it was left in my room and so I slept like staring at this thing afraid to touch it for like weeks you know, I mean, that Sundog was the scariest thing I had ever heard in my life, you know, and it was just told to me, like, you know, in like a five minute version by my dad. And so, like, it wasn't until 
like after college, like Luke and I had been friends for several years at that point. And I knew Luke was like a huge Stephen King fan, but I was really scared. Like it had a lot of like that type of stuff for me. And I, I think a very it was frustrating like, youth of like trying to really just like, hey, psst, like, would you like yeah. read some Stephen King? Like, just really trying to push it on everybody and, mm-hmm. and went through a lot of periods of people being like, either not ready for it or then like snooty about it and like, I don't want to read that. And then, you know, finally, I think it was, I finally got everybody in my circle to read the dark tower. And it was, that like, was, like, that was the big it. break point because, because that was, that was different enough. And it's, and it's in the dark tower. Like the thing is like Luke sort of pitched it to me as like the behind the scenes story. Like he pitched the dark tower as like, okay, it's the first book Stephen King ever wrote. And then he kept it up and then he almost died and all that. And so like, I'm a real sucker for like, you know, like I read all of Cerebus and stuff. So I think Luke probably knew that that was the catnip for me is like, oh, this long thing that spanned a career. Like, and I was like, oh yeah, that'll be the thing. So right after college, when I graduated film school and I was like having that post, you know, college like on we thing like i read the whole dark tower just like voraciously in like i don't know like a month and a half or something and then i read mm. it uh that was like the big accomplishment in my adult life at that point was i was like you know what fuck it i'm gonna go read it i'm gonna face my fears like exactly and it was you know of course very tied to the narrative i didn't really realize that at the time until i read it i was like oh yeah this is very uh synchronous oh, yeah, to life great. positioning in an odd kind of way so that was like the summer after film school is i read all that shit and then it was basically i don't know like a year later that luke and i started writing together and at that point stephen king became like one of the big common reference points because i knew it was something that luke had loved and as i was getting into it i really did see the relevance for what we were trying to do you know like we both wanted to make like interesting movies or interest tell interesting stories and it was like, oh, Stephen King provides like a way that it, it does have a tangible real world quality that has real emotions to it yeah. and real characters, but that it's imaginative in so many different ways. And so the work really provided, I think, like in addition to some other things that, you know, that we had common love of. But that I think, Luke, I would say pretty fairly Stephen King is in the 10, you know, the top 10 reference category, along with like Neon Genesis Evangelion, Buffy the Vampire Slayer you know, I don't know, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, you know, like all the big ones sure. that you reference to just go like, that's how storytelling works, you know, mm-hmm. and especially because we were getting into horror, Stephen King really did, you know, occupy a clear, because at that time there were good ones and then there were a lot of not good adaptations, you know. Yeah. 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 There you go. Yeah. The adaptations are real hit or miss. Yeah, and they always were, and it was and it was one of those things that you grew up watching those and and knowing the ideas were cool, but sometimes the execution wasn't there, you know, and and then reading it being like, oh yeah, all of the ideas are cool, and 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 you know having that sort of like yeah, it opens up your imagination if you're trying to be a storyteller in this medium for sure. Yeah, there's something about King's characters work that it all I always go back to when I'm trying to differentiate him from other popular authors especially yeah where it what's really odd about king's characters are they are kind of authorly and theatrical but they are also as you said they're very grounded and recognizable and and mm-hmm. you know in almost always people that you recognize in people around you right mm-hmm. so yeah. i mean that's one of the reasons why it is such a wonderful book to me is that the there's aspects of the losers club that i saw in me in my friends in our dynamic it's the reason why the body is such an incredible read and stand by me is you know a masterpiece of a movie is you recognize you know those those different people those different friends in there and you know there's something about 
King's writing that he, he has his colloquialisms and, uh, and anachronisms and, and shit that, that makes it not exactly real life, but it's close enough that you, it makes it like the real life you wish you, you were around. Yes. You know what I mean? Well, it's I mean, a little, little... part of that, just to touch upon what you're saying is in, and especially the examples that you gave is you care about the characters, but the, the key to a lot of this is, is the characters care about each other. Yes, and, and, yeah. and the friendships are so important. Like I remember yeah. reading Duma Key, which is sort of a, a lesser talked about one, but the relationship between our main guy and like Wireman, and they're like they're this these old men that have this friendship is like that, you 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 get so attached to it because it's not just that you recognize them, but but their feelings for each other are something that you can sort of vicariously partake in. And so you become extra attached to everybody in the stand. So that when he like, yeah. you know, ends the chapter with, and then he never saw him again. You're like, yep. oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The stand's really good with that. Um, especially how they kill off who is the dude that's obviously being primed as the main character. Oh right. Mm-hmm. He kills him off halfway through. And, and uh, in Dark Tower is that way too. Like I've never cried. I, I've cried watching movies and TV shit all the time. I'm a softie. I never cried reading a book, even in sad books. You know, like uh, where the red fern grows, and you know all these. Uh, I never cried cried during that stuff, but you know that final Dark Tower book, like I had to stop multiple times because I couldn't yeah. read the page because oh, yeah. my my vision was. Just, yeah, it's not, and it's, that's not, and that's not only the writing; it's just the full weight of the fucking thing. You know, yeah. if mm-hmm. if you were reading them as they came out, you know, it was. I don't know. It was like this ongoing thing in your life. Yeah, that it did not have a resolution for many, many, many years. And then finally here it was like I I've mentioned this on the show before, but I remember going to pick up the the final book when it came out and being like, man, this is this this is serious shit. Like this is the ending of this fucking, you know, trip that I've been on for yeah. the past, you know, 20 something years. I imagine the experience is slightly different if you they were all if you start reading them now and then read all of them you know you're you're you can basically do a binge model on that shit that just wasn't available to us at the time i was a little way halfway between you and ben of like i did read the first couple not as they came out but yeah i read them before it was done and then when it was when it was wrapping up i was like okay let me go back and read them all again and i definitely remember being a member of the, the stephen king library where they send you the books but they would send them to you like late. And I remember being there, like the Walmart had the Dark Tower book seven up like the like a couple days early somehow. And it was mm. like, I'm not waiting for the fucking library. To say, I'm, I'm buying this now. I'm reading this now. And, right. and it still has, uh, a, there's tear stains on one of the pages. Like I, tears wow. fell onto the book in the last couple of pages. Mm. Uh, so what did y'all make of the movie? God. I don't think I ever Richard, saw it. I don't think I ever the saw The temperature it. just dropped 20 degrees in this. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That, what I mean, is there? Yeah, well, you, wrote, you guys wrote Stephanie, which is yeah. a movie that uh, Akiva Goldsman directed. We were yep. on the set of Stephanie yep. when Akiva was taking calls about yep. Yep. Dark Tower. I don't remember if like something yeah, had just fallen apart or, or what, but I do remember. I yeah. remember what, and I. I shouldn't like. Let's see how <laughs> I can tactfully do this. It was basically, if I understand it correctly, it was we were sitting behind Akiva at the monitor, 
And we were all very aware of the Dark Tower situation. And he answered a call. I don't know with whom, but it was somebody at Sony, I guess. And it was Akiva and him throwing out director names. It was exactly the phone call that you would be like, oh, my God, I'm listening to like the producer and writer (laughs) of this movie, like just toss out names as possibilities for like, you know, the most defining thing of like, you know, like you're like, holy shit. And and it was one of these things. I think I can do it. I'm okay. I won't. But he was like throwing out names of people who weren't available. And I swear to God, I think he was like, you know, he's like, well, Fincher's busy. And, you know, like I, I want to say he said JC, like James Cameron, but that could be wrong. I don't know. It was like one of those things where you were hearing you him imagine? just listing off like the massive directors that he I, I was don't think like, we could get Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was like that. And and then yeah. and then he and then he had some choice words for a couple other things that I probably shouldn't say. But like, it was very, very <laughs> funny. So so yeah, Luke, Luke's right. We We had like a slight window. And then we actually mm. met, I believe, the filmmakers who did make that movie. And, and they were very nice guys. And again, like, I didn't see the movie. And I understand they were under a lot of various studio pressures and stuff. So, yeah. you know, God love them for being filmmakers and trying. But like, yeah, I think we actually watched the first cut of Stephanie in a screening sitting next to the guys, the writer and the director of the Dark Tower movie, I believe. We mm, were introduced yeah. to them as that. <laughs> so we were sort of around in the kind of Akiva circle at that time. And, yeah. But obviously didn't have much to contributors say but right. yeah, but, you know yeah i'll just say my son's name is roland so the so the bar is high oh, no. <laughs> on what, what i demand of a dark tower adaptation for sure yeah well uh, hopefully I, we'll yeah. get another crack at it at some point yeah i, I mean I know, there's always I, been talk of it i don't know if anything if anything's happening now i mean luke and i are always kind of like just you know keeping our ears you know we have like to the ground Pfizer yeah. setting on dark tower you know with development conversations but i don't remember last time we heard something I I, I, I will say that uh, I've I've talked with Nikolai Arcel a couple of times over Mm. the years, and that dude is a true blue dyed in the wool, knows his Dark Tower shit, super fan uh, and was, you know, my understanding is he was just as disappointed at at how things played out and that there was there was a lot of micromanagement uh, happening and uh now he didn't say this to me directly but i've talked to a lot of people around mrc talked to a lot of people you know obviously i'm a you know a dark tower nerd so i uh am digging for dirt where i can on this stuff and you know i don't know the a lot of the blame seems to be pointed in akiva's direction and that like i think a lot of the feeling was that akiva was wanting to direct the movie and uh, well he did direct some of it because there were reshoots where Arcel just wasn't on set. Whoa. That's, there's yeah, a we, moment, there's I, a moment I mean, in that movie. I haven't seen it since the theater. And, and so I like, I guess spoilers for, for dark tower, uh, <laughs> right? The movie and, and, you know, to some extent the books, I don't know. There, yes. There's a moment where I thought he, like, he's got to like, maybe he's got to, something's happening and he's like got to kill Jake or save Jake or something. Yeah. And I thought for a moment they were actually going to have him recite the gunslinger oath and get to the line. I kill with my heart and shoot Jake. And I was like, if they ah. do that, Holy shit. Like that will be a moment. And then they just didn't do it. So. Well, that's, that's, that's one, that's something I can give credit to. Uh, Cause I really, I, I got an early air. I, I got a look at Akiva and, what was it? Uh, Pink, Pink, Pinker, Jeff Pinkner. Yeah. Pinkner. Jeff Pinkner. Pinkner. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I got a, a look at their script. I, I fucking hated it. But what I will say is the, the original ending 
wasn't that he gets in a, a wizard duel with uh, Matthew McConaughey and throws glass around and whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The original ending was he does the Jake's in the chair. He sees him through the portal and Jake does the, you know, he doesn't say there are, he does say there are other worlds in these, but he's not saying it like resolutely like, Oh, you know, okay, you're going to fucking do this, you know, fuck you as it is in the book. Yeah. What he does is he, he said he's essentially like begging Roland to shoot him to save the tower and Roland does. And, 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 uh, and when I read that, I'm like, okay, uh, that that's ballsy to fucking end your movie with, with, uh, the hero shooting the kid in the chest and finding his, his love of the, uh, um, you know, the journey to the dark tower again, that that's a really interesting way to end it. And I like that. Mo- I, 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 I had the same reaction when I read it, but also with the thought immediately following of, and they'll never fucking do this. There's no way you're going to launch this franchise with a grown yeah. man shooting this kid in the face while he's like strapped into a chair and then credits roll. It's never going to no. fucking happen. You know, even yeah. even as I read it, I knew there was, you know, that someone saved my script, life but... tonight by Elton John just playing over the credits. Oh, man. That's, that's was... the biggest bummer. I used to listen to that song in the car and drive around just imagining oh, yeah. The sequences that we would do in like I the sixth do, movie, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it might still happen. I mean, who knows at this? Point? I mean, because fucking Hellraiser, we tried to get into twenty twelve in it the first time, yeah. and it took until now. So, I mean, you never know. But it's like that's it's still like you have to let some things die in your heart on some level, you know. Like and and you know, Luke knows this because we did it with Hellraiser a couple times, but. You know, we'll see. We're not cool. here to talk about the Dark Tower. What are we doing? <laughs> In We're fact, always why here didn't... to talk about the Dark Tower. I'm surprised y'all didn't just pick the Dark Tower. Uh, but you didn't. Uh, you know, well, to... Yeah, tough titty. There's thinnies in here, so we're yes, cool. exactly. There's a yeah. speaking circle. We, we're yeah, fair yeah enough, that's, it's fair really, it's related for sure, and that's and that's all the shit that I think like you know we can talk about in relation to our work and stuff too, because I think like. You know, we obviously, you know, we haven't had the chance to officially do King yet, but I think that like, you know, as we, as I said at the beginning, I think, you know, we've definitely been inspired by elements of that stuff. So, so, you know, some of the mythological stuff from the Dark Tower probably has, you know, some re- relevance and certainly the story, I think, does feel quite like something that we, you know, could have adapted or could, you know. Fair right. enough. Fair enough. And that story is N. Uh, as I said up top, that's a, a novella that was originally produced as this like, you know, multi-part video series, like kind of an animated graphic novel. Wow, that, I didn't know uh, that. Is that yeah, where it that, began? Was that like that was the first iteration yeah, it was like, of it? My understanding is that it was sort of a promotional tool tool for Just After right. Sunset because that video okay. series arrived in 2008 and so did Just After Sunset. Which, yeah, the, right. the writing came first. It's not like uh, he wrote that for the... The uh, the video thing, which was like a tied in with the Marvel book, wasn't it? Yeah, they did a comic I adaptation. I, I, th- I think I, I watched it. Same illustrations, yeah. Yeah, I watched it earlier, and and uh, the Marvel does get a credit right at the top. So I think that that was tied into the Marvel series. Gotcha, um, gotcha. But well, uh, yeah, for anyone who is unfamiliar with this story, would one of you like to lay out the basic plot? Yeah, it's a it is an epistolary story with a nested narrative, which is really interesting when you think about the fact that the the story is almost structured like like the circle of stones within the story. But it's uh, I mean, I guess the elevator pitch would be it's like uh, uh, OCD, like a c- contagious madness 
And it's, mm-hmm. it's very much a weird fiction type story in the vein of Lovecraft or even more so Arthur Mocking, where there's a therapist who has a patient come in who has an obsessive compulsive disorder that seems to have been born of uh, this particular place, this, this Ackerman's field, I think it's called, mm-hmm. um, that, that he went to and has got these speaking stones and there's a, there's a thin place between worlds there. And there's eight stones that seem to be containing some sort of creature or something from this other world. And uh, if you look at them, sometimes it looks like there's seven and sometimes it looks like there's eight and there's supposed to be eight. So it kind of, you have to fix the place within, within our world and then contain the thing. And, and so it creates this obsessive compulsive sort of madness in, in somebody. And, and that is transferred to the therapist who is then maybe going to transfer it to other people as well. There's always mm-hmm. like a, taker of this place yeah it's a little bit of a passing curse story as well right so it's like once you have knowledge the the curse in this instance is knowledge of this and it starts eat the curiosity eats away at you and you are drawn to this place and it seems like this place always needs a caretaker uh which is a really interesting thing because it's it's not just like haha you know i told you so now you're fucked and you're gonna get obsessed with this and probably kill yourself it is like I'm sorry that that I'm having to do this, but I can't deal with this shit much longer. And somebody needs to be there to keep the gate secure, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a you know you're dooming somebody, but it's also like a necessity. Like if you don't do it, this like elder god situation thing is going to happen, and our world's going to. And in some ways, it's they're like, always complicit too, because it's it's their own curiosity. You know, that's like, true. Don't, don't fucking go there, man. Like you know, it ends that like there's a really great moment at the end where the the sister like goes and she's like, "Burn this!" Like, don't mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I I didn't know about sending this to you, and then she's like, "Well, I'm going to go check it out myself." And it's. <laughs> You know, you, it's that, that thing of like, well, I just have to see it. I got to see it for myself. And But it, do you get the feeling that seeing it is what like eliminates one of the stones and like makes the creatures or whatever the hell that is staring uh, through the other side? Do you think that them seeing it is what's elim- wearing down the reality? Or do you think that it's necessary for somebody to be there and touch the stones and do that OCD thing with even numbers and to keep That's the barrier really in good place? question. Like, in tra- like I wasn't, I wasn't really necessary. I'm trying to remember what, if I had that thought while reading, I don't think I did. Like if, if it- people would just fucking leave it alone, it would be fine. But then mm. somebody always goes out there because we always have to know. And then once but you I, do it, you've sort of fucked it up. I don't know. But- I th- I think that it's it, it's it's a requirement to uh, that was my read on it. Where where if there isn't somebody setting up this barrier and constantly and the OCD part of it is once you see it and you see the the seven stones instead of the eight. And these are the think stones like a uh, Stonehenge or, you know, uh, just these rocky outcroppings that shouldn't be in this otherwise beautiful, like meadow that overlooks yes. the, with the Androscoggin river. Um, and, uh, uh, if there isn't somebody there that is infected with this and not only there touches the stones and does whatever they need to do to confirm that there's eight there. Cause eight's a good number. It's a round number, you yes. know, uh, in the, it's a, the odd numbers are, are bad numbers and that you become obsessed with that and everything has to be, you know, in, in, uh, even numbers. Um, but like the way he arranges the tissue box and shit, what he's with his therapist and the way he's, he's setting things up at perfect angles and stuff like in he's, he is saying, 
um, that he's doing that because it's these little things that help keep the doorway yeah. closed. Yeah, I think yeah. it's what like the way you buy a friend all the time and don't know it. And that there's these. Yeah, I'm looking well, at it on, on Wikipedia right now. Yeah. And it says, um, N has become convinced that a circle of stones in a field on the outskirts of a nearby town, Ackerman's Field, contains a potential doorway to another reality where a terrifying monster repeatedly said to be a helmet-headed being named Cthune is trying to break through. A warning sign of the monster's imminent penetration is when a person viewing the field sees seven stones when there are, in fact, eight. N's belief shared by those who came before him is that verifying the presence of eight stones when he's in the field and his obsession with order when he is absent somehow strengthens the barrier. Between our well, world and the one, I mean, that's world. that's a big mystery, right? With all these things, is like, is is uh, are that's a chicken and the egg thing, not? man. You know, yeah. do we, mm. are we supposed to be caretaking it, or or is that is that just madness? And it and it would be fine if we didn't arrange the digi boxes in the mm. right way. But that's that's what's so fascinating about this story is it puts you in the mindset, of, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder. Like, right, you'll be fine if you don't flip the light switch twelve times. But, but you, you have to do it like or else things be. are going to go bad. Yeah. Yeah. And so the story is sort of like, but what if it did? What if the world did depend on, you know, the existence of reality as we know it depends on you fucking getting that light switch flip just right. And if you don't, we're all doomed. Well, 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 it's time for the mid-roll ad read again. Scott, I have some bad news. What? I ran out of my Lumi Labs gummies. I had the last bit up. of it how two days fi- ago. How did you run out of yours before I ran out of mine? Well, actually, I know <laughs> the, I know the answer to that, but I can't you, say it on air. There, um, there might be authorities listening to this, so choose your yeah. words carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But go on. Mine, go on. Very legal Lumi gummies have been uh, run through. What can I say? I've been uh, popping them pretty regularly. That's kind of what they're there for, Scott. This is mm-hmm. all about microdosing, and that is what Lumi Labs is all about. They have a line of THC gummies built specifically for microdosing, which means, well, taking a little bit during the day keeping you relaxed you're not getting high as balls you're enjoying your life you're being relaxed i use them they help me get to sleep uh they get me in a nice sleepy mood so that is why my supply is gone because i'm i'm uh, using them roughly every night to uh get relaxed and go to bed between bouts of insomnia and my body's determination to kind of keep vampire hours i do have trouble maintaining that sleep schedule and the lumi gummies have been a godsend kind of helping me become a little bit of a normal person there the best part about Lumi's THC gummies is that they are available nationwide and aren't affected by your state's marijuana laws because they use a synthetic THC strain. To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com. And if you like what you see, you can use the code KINKASS to save 30% off your first order and get free shipping. Again, that's microdose.com code KINKAST. Yes, and definitely try those gummies, folks. They are legit. I'm telling you that not only as your podcast co-host, but also your friend, okay? <laughs> We're gonna you have were skeptical of these THC gummies. I was skeptical. I was well. I'm yeah. skeptical. I've been I've been hurt before, Eric. That's the <laughs> problem, and you know I have to. Uh, I kind of keep my head on a swivel so that doesn't happen again. Uh, but these things are fantastic. We genuinely believe in them. Uh, really want you to order those, folks. And while I am running my mouth, I am here to tell you about our other sponsor this week, which uh, appears to be Blumhouse Productions. This week's episode is brought to you by The Visitor, the latest horror thriller film from Blumhouse Productions. When Robert and his wife Maya moved to her childhood home, 
he discovers an old portrait of a man with his likeness, a man referred to only as the Visitor. Soon he finds himself descending down a frightening rabbit hole in an attempt to discover the true identity of his mysterious doppelganger, only to realize that every family has its own terrifying secrets. The Visitor is available to buy or rent on digital now. I like it. You put some oomph into that one. Yeah, I'm I'm getting Randy. Now, if you're if you're getting too Randy, you know what that means. It's time to bring on Mr. Zombie again to lead us back into the episode. Bring it back. I want to throw out to you guys, like, I do remember, it made me start to remember being a kid and having more affection for even numbers than yeah. odd numbers when we were learning about them. And I don't know if it's just the connotation of the phrase odd numbers, like, oh, those ones are weird. I don't like those ones. But but it made me get in that mindset of like, yeah, no, even numbers are friendlier. Those are the good numbers, and the odd numbers are the bad numbers. They're more complete. They are more complete, yeah. Yeah, I don't Easier know. Easier for it... rounding. <laughs> it is funny, though, that, that it's like like when you when you put it is, because that's I read it really, when I was reading it really quickly, as a like, okay, what he's doing here. Because you can kind of sometimes trace King's thought process, with especially the short stories, like the sort of like, yeah how he got it together. And I, I always find that very interesting. And, and it's like, yeah, this is a way to go like, well, what would it, what would it be like if somebody with OCD was able to kind of credibly prove that this did have that, you know, power right. or that ability right. and convincing, you know, to other people. But it's also interesting when you, when I think Eric, you were saying like, sort of questioning the ultimate thing that like, well, you know, I, that still is like, it's not to say that the story is like believed to be like a justification for OCD as like a holy cause at the same time. Right. So there is like, it's like one of those things that's like, yeah, what if it did felt like that and you could prove it, but I do think it's still probably like you're saying, Luke has to rest in the same uncertain unknowability that like the compulsion does as presented in real life. And so the whole thing is like, yeah, it's interesting the way that, because it's also sort of one of those things that we tend to like in our movies or I tend to like in other people's movies too, where even the rules are being laid out by somebody who, who only has their own subjective experience to, to be describing it from. So exactly the mm-hmm. expectation that this is saving the world and stuff is still, I think to some degree, right. Like determined by the guy who's telling it. It's not like there, like there is no like authoritative sure. text that is like in, 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 you know, and then of course you could always question. Right. That's, you know, yeah. That's what the text. Yeah, that's what makes it fall so nicely into the weird fiction sort of yeah. vibe. <laughs> yes. right. These unreliable narrators. It's this is a yes. series of unreliable narrators. For sure. as each but, here, but there's commonalities though, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I think that it there, there needs to be a caretaker is because you're always seeing the solstice theory work, right? Uh-huh. Where they have the, he says that there's you know at, at the solstice. Uh, it is uh, the the winter solstice is when things are calm and safe and when th- the doorway is harder to break through and and that's when the OCD lessens but it's always in in April at the you know yeah. the spring and summer whatever that that solstice where things get really rough and you have to keep the compulsion to to, to do stuff is there I don't know I feel like the context clues are are there right. to justify yeah. I think that you're right but, and yeah. The, yeah. You know what I'd really like to see? I feel like I feel like this trope of like a thing on the other side of the veil trying to break through into our world and it being prevented by people on this side, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or observed or whatever is is right. one that King has returned to a few times. Yes. And I'm trying to think of an example where 
the the hero of that story or the heroes as they may be just completely mm. fail and the thing does break through and just mm. wrecks havoc i would love to see that version of the story it's not a king thing but th- that's cabin in the woods mm. oh that's true that's true <laughs> we just don't get to see see it because they they had a small budget <laughs> you know you, yeah. did, you just yeah. get the big arm coming up at, at the end but yeah i would like to see king's take on that though yeah you know mm. it's just some fucking lovecraftian creature breaking through and you know it's just that for 40 pages this fucking thing <laughs> destroying everything right it's, like, it's i just would read the, the shit out of that yeah it's just the glimpse of the null and revival but for for the last yeah, I don't I don't want suggestions or hints or something limited by yeah. a budget. I want to see like <laughs> I want I want it to well, start you know, I mean, with, it's a you know, bit, you know, the mist, the mist is yeah. probably yeah. the closest spot to yeah, I was something. about to say that I just watched that one again the other day, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was torn. yeah. that's true. That's true. I love I love that one. I, Luke, Although, I didn't tell you I watched I watched the mist in color the other day and for the first time and I actually really liked it in color, not in black and white. Just throwing that out mm. there. Okay. I think they're both yeah. good. Both versions for it's like yeah, it's kind of like when like Fury Road. You know, mm-hmm. I love the fuck the colors in Fury Road are incredible. When I heard they were doing a black and white, it was like, what the fuck are you doing? Well, sure enough, like that movie becomes an entirely different movie when it's in black and white, and it and it does some really interesting shit. So, you know, it, I, I think the mist is is right there with it. You know, I think it, the mist yeah. in black and white just helps sell the special, the, you know, kind of limited special effects a lot better than the color yeah, it version. Does. It, it does, it does, and it, sure. it, and it makes it feel more like an old, yeah. you know, fifties, uh, you know, kind of like the Blob or something. You Which know, like King a, said, like I remember reading Skeleton Crew, and he like says in the afterward that if they ever did a movie, like he would like it to be black and white. I'm pretty sure it's in there. Um, like, cause that, that was always in my head from before they ever did the movie. But I do want to say, like, I do want to throw my weight behind, uh, Brian Fuller's argument, uh, on, on the skeleton crew episode about the mm. ending of the movie versus mm. the ending of the book. And, and I'm definitely book ending over movie ending. Mm. I think the majesty is stripped away when you have the military just roll up and, and eliminate Cthulhu with flamethrower throwers. I just think mm. it's like you've taken kind of what was scary and otherworldly. And so, you know, in a way, almost even though the ending is so dark of the movie, like almost more hopeful or more like easy because it's like, yeah, we can fight this. It's a much happier ending. It's just not a happy ending for David. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that that's why I didn't immediately think of this when I started talking about wanting to see a version of of this trope Mm. that, you know, begins with, the failure to keep mm-hmm, the thing at bay mm-hmm. and it burst through because in my mind now, the ending of the mist, I love the ending of the, the mist movie. Uh, I love, I like both the endings, but um, I, 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 I'm a big fan of the movie version. And I think that's sort of supplanted in my memory. What that, what that story is, whether that's fair or not, but you know, in my mind, like the mist is a thing where, yeah, the things break through, but then they are ultimately contained or they right. die off once the mist starts to dissipate or whatever the fuck the case may be. It's it's kind mm-hmm. of un- unclear in the movie. But um, yeah, I want a thing where the opening scene is the hero, you know, doing his damnedest to keep a door shut, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, metaphorically, and he just fucking fails. And then it's, you know, what yeah. does that look like? What does it look like when literal Cthulhu fucking burst through the earth and just starts stomping all over the place. I guess that's just a fucking kaiju movie, but 
Right, right, right. I agree with Stephen King kaiju story. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised there isn't more of that uh, when you think about it. It's it's one of the few, you know. He's he's covered, you know, like zombies, werewolves, vampires, um, you know, uh, dangerous tech ghosts, you know, like all all these mm-hmm. things, but but never really a he hasn't fucked around with kaiju stuff. It, it kind of yeah. seems like that would be a really fun thing I'm to write too. The only thing it, it that makes I can so think- much sense, honestly, because it would because the main thing, like it's like his his brand of folksiness and like character centric storytelling would be exactly like the right kind of meld to something like when, when kaiju movies are bad, it's usually just because you're not invested, you know, like for various different reasons, like in the mm-hmm. human characters, I feel like that's, it's like a weird, it would be, I think he'd be uniquely good at it probably. And he's, he, the only time I can think of that he dipped into it is um, when Rodan it's Rodan, right. That shows up in it for that attack. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. At, at the old ironworks or whatever. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. Mike yeah. hides from him. Um, because that, you know, that was King pulling everything that he watched as a kid, you know, which would mm-hmm. include, you know, fifties cheesy sci-fi shit. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, but it wasn't the size stuff. of, I can't believe I'm going to say this phrase, actual Rodan, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Like it was canonical Rodan was much larger, I believe. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, my memory of it is that it was very large, but more pterodactyl ish than that's. I think you're right. Right. I think so. Rodan is right. But but I think Mike specifically says that it's Rodan or whatever. I believe so. I believe you're right. Yeah. Now, speaking um, of, of children, though, and like all this stuff, sort of, is it, I'm, I'm tying a couple of different disparate things together because there's stuff <laughs> that I want to talk about from the story. But we're, we're talking about the mist, and I and I mentioned that you know I've got I've got kids, and my my oldest, mm. I finally got him to read the mist. And I was like, we have to read a book for school. We have to have something to to mm. read. And I was like, uh, okay, what's a Stephen King? Okay, the mist. You like monsters here? Yeah. Just finished it and and, and loved it. It's short. Um, and yeah. It's short. It's got yeah. It's it's the kind of one of the pulpier ones. But that just, you know, it's also my kids growing up and, and you're talking about the, you know, the, the it stuff and like all that. And the, there's this line from from N that just hit me like a fucking ton mm. of bricks, which is children growing up as its own kind of divorce and almost as painful. Mm. And mm. as a father watching my kid grow up, it was like and that's like kind of the power of Stephen King that even in these like kind of short stories about this other thing, there'll be like just a line or two that will like just fucking hit mm. in such a bittersweet beautiful emotional way like you know i talked about duma key a minute ago and this there's this scene that i'll always remember in duma key when he he has his art show and it was like he kind of there's this line that describes like that he knows this is the last like truly great moment of his life and, and it's like mm. all going to be downhill from here it's like this is such a great night and like you kind of know when you get to a certain point in your life that there's this is the last one that's going to be like this. And that's okay. Yeah. God right. damn, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're supposed to be writing spooky shit. What yeah, the fuck exactly. is all this stuff that you're doing here? Yeah. You me feel things. Luke, you mentioned earlier that, um, you know, this had, you know, some Lovecraftian vibes to it or Arthur Machen. Um, yeah. The guy that wrote the great God pan. Yes. And, uh, you know, it turns out it is directly inspired by the great god Pan. Which I direct- didn't know and is so funny because on a visit to yes. LA, <laughs> we went, Ben and I went to some like weird bookstores before I lived, you know, out in I think California. It was, I think it was Book Soup, I think. I could be wrong. I think it was Book Soup I, I think on it Sunset might Boulevard. Been, but I, I found Great God Pan and like it had a really 
fucking cool cover and I bought it and I had read this story. I had read and when it came out in 2008, and this is after that. And I became like a big disciple of, you know, Machen or Machen. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Uh, yeah, we've Welsh. never talked to anyone else who's known how to say it. Is it Machen? Because it's Welsh. So I that don't know. I guess. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, it I have no idea Ma- how it's pronounced. Someone someone will helpfully point yeah, it out. Yeah, please pronounce correct machine. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Let's all do it differently. I prefer him to Lovecraft as uh, just from, from the prose and from... I think this stuff is scarier. Is a story called The White People, which is my favorite short story of all time. It's fucking incredible, terrifying Man, I story. Read, I got to read some of this guy's shit because I've never yeah. actually read it. It's really the good. Great it's God really, really cool. Oh, Great God Pan is great. And so, what like, is it about? It is about it's about a lot of things, but it's there's a there's a woman, you know, and it's all you know 1800, so it's all that that really great you know Lovecraft era sort of like pseudoscience stuff, like trepanation mm-hmm. and things. But there's they perform this doctor performs a surgery on a woman to allow her to see the other side, you know, into the supernatural world. So he mm-hmm. does something to her brain. And then she of course becomes sort of this simpleton goes mad, ultimately dies, but not before giving birth to a daughter. And so you're kind of jumping around a lot again, a little bit like this where there's, I think there's some epistolary stuff and there's definitely like, I think it's, it's, it's a lot it's of it is a thing. Yeah. But but she has a daughter who is you know the daughter of something that she witnessed on the other side, um, and yeah, it's super cool and gnarly story and, and the, the couple of and that was characters following the the wake of you know the the destruction that this this child leaves uh, behind. And that and that, that, and that story was not was was I mean correct me I mean that was that was influential to some degree on early early ideas that became the Nighthouse at times and so that. That uh, you know, Arthur Machen or Machen, however you say it, and and some of these stories in particular have been referenced quite a bit by us uh, at different times for things we were doing in different ways and stuff. So I, I recognized it when I started reading yeah, in the other day. I was like, oh, this is a very, very. Uh, yeah. mm. It was like, holy shit! Oh, I didn't even realize mm-hmm. that one of the things that I've yeah. been like leaving the banner for for years and all of our work is actually directly. I just chose this story because I remembered it being creepy, and I was going through the list and be like what haven't they done on King cast that we could possibly do not be the fifth person to do, you know, the shining or whatever. And it was like, Oh, that one. I love that one. That one scared the hell out of me. And uh, yeah. That, yeah. I assumed out. you knew the connection. Cause when I was reading no. it, I was like, Oh yeah, this is totally like a market thing. Oh, nice. They, they, they mentioned it. And it's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's very funny. I wasn't until him up on the show before in relation to revival for obvious reasons, right. based mm-hmm. on you know, what mm-hmm. you just said. And so I really need to get around to to reading that is there a particular collection that i should pick up i think there's like a free audiobook honestly there's like there's because it's all public domain i think at this point so i think you can kind of just get it anywhere oh right on well you'll get different sort of you know you it's not like stephen king where you've got like there's skeleton crew and this is what's in skeleton crew it's like you know it was all in magazines and different things so you can find gotcha. different collections that have different ones. But I definitely recommend Great God Pan. It was originally published with a story called The Inmost Light, which is also awesome. And, and at, at one point, there was a shot of a book of a book called The Inmost Light in the night, in night House, and it got cut out, and I'm super fucking bummed about it. <laughs> uh, that one's good, but The White People is absolutely my favorite. Uh, you would have thought that Lovecraft would have written that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, no, good, good, good. Yeah, that was, that, yeah. was a, that was a late, that was a way homer for me. But yeah, no, good one. <laughs> Somebody had to say it. Get him. So, um, have y'all ever experienced anything? I mean, I guess this would be would count as a paranormal, paranormal or supernatural thing, um, which maybe you don't even believe in, which is a totally viable answer. I don't really believe in that shit either. But um, have you ever experienced a situation where you felt like a sense of unreality or a sense of, I don't know, maybe being like in an evil spot or a spot mm. where something not like a monster was going to break through the wall, but like you're, you're something that seems cursed or or, you know, you know what I'm getting at here? I don't see ghosts and I, I don't disbelieve anybody when they say they have. I, I have different ideas about what that can mean and things like that. I don't I don't like see things, but I do at times react, I think, to like energy. And right, sometimes right. there are places that 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 for whatever reason, I kind of just feel. Yeah, like like and sometimes it's like like broader areas and I don't really want to pinpoint it. So there's there's like, you know, there'll be just like a part of town in L.A. that I'll be in that I'll just be like, I don't know this. The vibes here are just weird and it's not something I can really put my finger on. And so like that, that the when I think Stephen King was the one who coined the like the weird place or the like bad place or whatever. I can't is it the term he uses in Dance Macabre, Luke? I can't remember. Yeah, he talks about it. I can't remember. Yeah. But it's like that that really resonated with me when I first like heard that term because that is I, I don't claim to have like contact or, or certain kind of visible contact with any paranormal or supernatural experience type things. But but the sense of a bad place is something that I think I can relate to. And I do think that, you know, I mean, like with anything else, like, you know, I'll go back to the shining of the, you know, like smell of burnt toast kind of thing. I do think that residual energy is at the very least some way to look at, you know, what that is. So it's, you know, I, yeah, I like I like that idea. And I, I I do respect it on some level. You know what I mean? Like I, I it doesn't mean that I think when you feel that vibe that you have to leave immediately. But in general, my attitude about those kind of things is if I'm feeling it, maybe it's something I shouldn't be around, you know, like, cause there's plenty of things that have happened right. anywhere that I don't notice, you know what I mean? So right. yeah, that's my take on that at least personally. Yeah. I'm definitely the Scully of the pair. So I'm you know constantly Mulder. Um, but I, I do remember, it's <laughs> not exactly what you were asking, but in terms of like obsessive compulsion and stuff, I, as a child, somebody told me once when you flush the the toilet the devil can come out and just like telling a kindergarten that, <laughs> you know, so like the like i remember as as a kid and like going on for years like a discomfort of like let me just check like sit down on the toilet and like let me look real quick and like don't really want to be on here when it flushes and it just it just something that just like stuck with me and so that led to sort of an obsessive compulsion feeling of fear and discomfort of like when you hit that something's gonna reach out and grab you <laughs> So, do, do you think it was like a drunk uncle that was like essentially telling you that it was the another kid stopped yeah. up? <laughs> it was another, you know, that, that was just the, kids are notoriously like, worth listening to say. about things like this. Yes, <laughs> reliable sources. I, I think I'm kind of with mm -hmm. Ben here, where I think that certain places can have a bad psychic energy to them, and I do believe. Well, I don't necessarily believe in ghosts. I do believe that like a, a place can. A place like Ackerman's Field, you know, mm -hmm. could exist in yeah. the term in terms of it being like a cursed stretch of earth or 
And and when I say cursed, I don't mean like a witch put a curse on it. I mean, you know, cursed right. by something horrible that happened there. I have definitely been in places where it was like, I have to get out of here right now. Like, this is not a cool place to be. You know, the energy is all wrong here. How much of that is this you being told that, though? Because, like, I felt that, too. And specifically, there was a... Um, the Alamo used to do rolling road shows at this abandoned insane asylum outside of Austin. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And they screened and session I swear nine to God, out there, right? It is. It's, it's like, it's oh, like wow. being in session nine and you're walking through this place. And it was like, it wasn't just an, an abandoned insane asylum. It was one, like the history is like legit fucked up and people were tortured and, and killed and died and, you know, disappeared and shit, you know, patients and stuff back in, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, and you walk through those hallways at night or whatever, you're walking through these things. They're really, it's off-putting and you get this this vibe of things are wrong here. But how much of that is because everything's run down and gross and I've seen a million horror movies and I know right. the history and we're in a, an insane asylum. Well, like, I don't know if I've ever had one where I've been like at a place where oh, I'm like, oh, this, I get a really oh, bad I got vibe one. here. And then, then I find out later some really fucked up shit happened. You know? I, got, I got one. I stayed in a house. I stayed, sorry, I stayed in a hotel in a very small town in England called Rye, I believe. I was with my, my girlfriend at the time and we stayed in this room as a hotel that was built in like the 1400s and it had been like destroyed and partially rebuilt, but it's been around for so fucking long. And it's like, you know, it looks like you're in Harry Potter. It's all ridiculous. Like everything's sagging and the hallways get narrower as you go. And, and it's like, we were in this place at like really late at night. It's like, you can hear a pin drop. It's in the middle of the country. And I was sitting there and all the creaking and the feeling. And I, and I was like, I had seen a, like a pamphlet or something when we got in the hotel that said Henry James's name on it. And I was like, I fucking bet Henry James wrote the turn of the screw, like in this room or something. And I Googled it and he wrote it like next door to where I was staying. Wow. Like, straight up. And it was one of those things where I was like, so yeah, take, you know, it's like, one of, it's like, well, does the, does the birth of the modern ghost story, you know, get invented exactly here because of buildings creak and it's old. Well, did they creak back fucking then? I mean, I'm in the same structures he was in. <laughs> right. So it's like it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm. It feels weird. It certainly sounds creepy and old, anyways. But like, yeah, you know. I mean, it it, it certainly makes you ask questions. I mean, I, I there's to me yeah, there's still plausible ways to look at it. Really but it's, it's a weird wonderful thing. line in the story where he the character references the mind under my mind where we were all pretty much alike. Uh, Ooh, it yeah. kind of touches on what you're saying, which is like so good of like that there is this, you know, the collective unconscious or whatever, but like we all have an animal brain, you know, the mind under the mind, and we're all the same there. To be in these places to experience these stimuli, it is going to all kind of call to mind a certain thing. Now, this makes a really good segue, actually. Uh, I, I threatened uh, bringing up your work in Hellraiser uh, with the story because <laughs> so much of this, it, this feeling of being next door to evil uh, is very much at the heart of the story. And something that, that N shares with Hellraiser is that that world is just right next door to ours. And we don't see it unless you fuck around with the puzzle box. Right. Yes. And then the door opens and in N we get a glimpse of this, this uh, circle of stones that somehow holding back this thinny or this door, this thin spot in realities between one world and another, the things can come through. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I wanted to point that out. And I, and if you had any 
revelations or thoughts about that when you revisit this going oh shit maybe we pulled a little bit from from i mean obviously obviously barker is going to get the lion's share of credit you know i'm not going to put his his stuff down but you know just the whole concept of that that thing next door which is prevalent in dark tower too right which i didn't really think about but i'm always so interested in and i keep on trying in various ways to get it into our stuff and it it shows up a little bit but not not necessarily to my satisfaction of of incantations right are always verbal but incantations can be movement ritual can be like dance ritual can be you know movement through space in a certain way so to me like moving that puzzle box it's not so much that you're like just solving the puzzle you're you're doing you're casting a spell Mm, by moving these pieces that have these symbols on them you Mm -hmm. know that's a big part of nighthouse by moving through spaces that are reversed and mazes you you are you know moving between worlds and so to me this this ring of circles and this ordered nature of things if i gotta put the tissue box i gotta put the flowers the right way (laughs) you are you know i'm really into that idea that that placement in space and these sort of mathematical things of the arrangement of stones and the number of stones these are important is a way that and 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 to so to me the puzzle box and the and the circle of stones kind of yo there is a real connection there of it's magic, but magic done, you know, with, with the physical as opposed to to the verbal. Oh, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot there because it's also that's also the architecture stuff, Luke, because like that's the other thing. When we when we wrote Nighthouse, like the, the whole concept of the, the husband being an architect was something of an like like an afterthought initially almost. And then it became relevant because that just connected to the idea that the house had a greater specificity for her. So unfolding from that sort of arbitrary character decision, then tying it into the narrative, we sort of ended up with this whole thing of kind of inventing this idea that somebody in exactly the way Luke's talking about, that somebody who was interested in architecture was an architect because of the nature of like geometry and building design and stuff that it would lead naturally to like a kind of an occult connection or fascination. And I don't really think we knew until the script was well written and and getting financed that there is actually kind of a history of architects and the occult and like you know that stuff has a kind of relevance in the world and there is tie things to tie there so to luke's thing it's like yeah there's a lot connected in terms of that idea but then to go back to the initial question there's also it's funny because when the way you phrase it about like you know the 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 darkness being like right right next door or something like that it also goes back even to something like super dark times which was you know, the first sort of, you know, like a uh, movie of ours that, you know, we're really proud of. And and that was, you know, the first one you mentioned, you know, when people talk about our career, oftentimes they say Super Dark Times, Nighthouse, and now Hellraiser. And it's like Super Dark Times is not a supernatural movie at all, really. You know, it's a movie about trauma and it's a movie about the way that trauma can displace you from your life. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think, I think everybody to different degrees or different awarenesses, you know, has like experienced things like that. And I think that people tend to connect with that in movies. And I think, you know, to me, it goes back to something like Blue Velvet in a weird way where like, and that's what I first initially connected King's work to, I think, from my kind of language of influences, because Lynch was probably, you know, one of the earliest cinematic influences on me as like a teenager and I got really into the idea of, you know, with Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet and this kind of like undercurrent of the otherwise, you know, picturesque Americana thing. And I right, started to see right. that King, King, if you really look at the beginning of Blue Velvet, it's not that far off from a Stephen King short story in a lot of ways. And the whole thing really isn't that far off because he writes stuff that isn't supernatural as well. But like that made an impression on me young, then connecting that to King. And so something like Super Dark Times for us 
it, even though it's not supernatural and it's it's arguably not a horror movie, I mean, I think it gets embraced for the right reasons by that community and the genre aspects of it, but it's still very Stephen King, even though it's not, it's, it's right. like a different kind of King story. And that they, the common thing there being that, yeah, I mean, you know, otherwise normal seeming folksy down to earth, you know, small town concerns of life and teenagers or whatever can be suddenly disrupted by massive violent upheaval, you know, that is unexpected and, and throws you out of balance with your life. And I think to take it all the way to Hellraiser, our initial Hellraiser idea back in 2012, the one that we've referenced in a lot of interviews, like that ultimately became Nighthouse, was about a woman whose husband dies tragically. And so the whole notion there was that the grief, the sudden grief, the trauma of losing this her husband would would be like an opening to another world. That again, the displacement from from a sudden event like that has a kind of nightmare quality that that you step into another world and so to us that's how we connected to hellraiser in, ter- in terms of the nighthouse stuff it's mm-hmm. really, it was really funny to go back and read this and sort of see that kind of the engine of this thing is is the notion of trapping something bad and then yes. committing suicide to essentially lock yes. the door yes. uh was like that was very much especially in early drafts of nighthouse it was i've trapped the thing now I will kill myself and the thing will stay trapped. And then, of course, somebody goes like, yeah, but I got to find out why you killed yourself. Let me go <laughs> okay. open that door again. <laughs> you know? You know, yeah, okay. no, and that's really, the thing. I didn't know that you had read it before. Like when I read the story, I was like, damn, this is kind of similar. And it's one of those things that like I'd like to, you know, jokingly say that the conclusion, the character, you know, oh, she killed myself to stop the darkness. Like I'd like to say that's a logical conclusion as well as one that, you know, Luke could have been influenced by. Because I, I, But at the same time, it's like, yeah, I think it's undeniable that this would have been somewhere in your head. And maybe we even talked about it briefly, but I don't Probably. I don't remember it being, you know, a, a, but it's, yeah, I can it's, see it's that. It's a good there. marriage meets N. I mean, I, it's not a conscious decision, but it is just kings in the DNA. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I was time. halfway expecting the little, the, the statue, the, the totem from Nighthouse to show up in like the background of a scene. And listen, in it wasn't for lack of it trying was, on my part, but it uh, was discussed. <laughs> it was discussed. Somebody on Twitter said they almost thought they saw it. And I, I kind of think that like, as it was know, in the spir- script. spiritually. Yes. <laughs> the, the doll was in the script. Also the, the tapestry from Weave world was in the script. Uh, like, Oh no shit. That's trying cool. to like put the, you know, but you know, I can't like force the issue and like, like put the tapestry from Weave world in there. But I definitely was trying to throw in as many, Barker Easter eggs as possible. Um, oh, that yeah. would have been cool as shit. Yeah. yeah. Would it then become yeah. a matter of who has the rights to it, or could you just? Yeah, I don't know. I think it's, 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 it's possible. Well, we would have worked it out with them because technically, like uh, Disney, ultimately owns both. So, I mean, it, it, it's not like it would have been necessarily impossible, but I do think it would have been a conversation that you, maybe you could have been more annoying than it would. Have you been could have had it in maybe. the background. They did. Um, Sony didn't have the rights for. Uh, it and they were able to throw in a Pennywise reference in the Dark Tower movie. You know, it's like right, I think that right. there's certain things like having a tapestry is, isn't you know in the background isn't going to trigger a, a lawsuit. I don't think. Yeah, you know no, that just you know, jogged loose a memory that I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't thought of in a long time. But you know, Clive Barker almost had like a little theme park area. Yes, at, yes. at Disney for yes, 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 yes. 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 
Like, yes, I forgot, not, I forgot all about that until just now. Like mm-hmm. they all no, dude, were that, in the fucking Clive Bar- Barker business at one point. No, it's weird if when you read up on that stuff, if anybody hasn't just like Googled the apparat, like what that was all supposed to be. Because in the only the main reason I know about that, and this is a funny memory that I don't always go back to, is that like the first time I watched Hellraiser all the way through was with my college roommate, my freshman year dorm room like roommate guy who it was literally the first thing we did after both of our parents like drove away, like dropped us off in Savannah, Georgia, where I went to college. And I was alone for the first time. He was alone for the first time. He was a tough Puerto Rican guy from New Jersey named AJ. And we were both trying to pretend like we hadn't been crying. And uh, and we were sitting in this room for the first time and we're like looking at each other's DVD collections because that was like the way to like chit chat with each other. And he had Hellraiser and he was like, I know you've seen this. And I was like, I haven't seen the whole thing. I've only seen parts on TV when I was a kid. And he was like, we're fucking doing it, man. And we ordered a pizza and watched Hellraiser together for the first time. And and he, it turned out that he was like a huge Clive Barker fan in general. Like he'd read all the books. He was like an obsessive fan. And he was the one. So it was, the, that would have been freshman year of college, like 2002. So I think the apparat stuff was still like in the works because he was all talking about mm. being excited about it. And I was like, damn, well, that's cool. I bought that first book and it came with a map of all the different islands in the in the mm. world of Aberat. Then it was like, this is what the theme park was going to represent was all these different islands. Huh. Oh, wait, just 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 so I finish the thought, because it's because I tried um, yeah. not to like call the guy out. But to my knowledge, AJ became an Orthodox priest and uh-huh. I tried to call him. I, I tried to find him online. He's not on social media anymore. I think I found him at a at a, like a Rus, uh, like a Russian Orthodox church in Florida, and I tried to call him to tell him that we made the Hellraiser. And uh, if I left a message, he never called me back. So I don't know if anybody knows AJ the priest. Uh, you know, tell him I said hi. I, I just so I want him to I want to know if he likes the movie. <laughs> Do we have anything else we'd like to say about N? Um, I, I want to help Eric out. Just tie tie this hellraiser and end together a little bit with just the addiction angle of yeah this this is very much you know our our hellraiser ultimately ended up becoming an addiction story and and you could definitely look at this of like the compulsion and then the relapse that all the characters go through that i think is really interesting and obviously something that that king is uniquely sort of qualified to talk about the emotions of and i know we're talking about mental illness and ocd but I, I I think that really works in the story is is this compulsion and the knowledge of like I, I should stop, but I can't stop. You know, and how it impacts others around you. You know, which is which yeah. is also something I, I haven't suffered with addiction unless you just count eating gross amounts of Tex Mex and barbecue. Um, uh, you know, uh, if, you know, I'm not a, a I don't have an addictive personality, which I you know I'm very thankful for because I grew up in a in a household where my stepdad was a very heavy drinker and he couldn't, you know, he was probably drunk for 90% of the time that I knew him, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he wasn't abusive. Uh, you know, I want to make that clear, you know, not, not all people who are addicts or, you know, lash out in violent ways or whatever, but uh, no. you know, but it's something that I'm very thankful. It wasn't in my DNA, right. That, that I, I didn't end up because I, because I looked at him a lot as a kid, with it wasn't disdain it wasn't pity but it was somewhere in that neighborhood where it's just like i don't want to look like that you know that was something that was in in the back of my mind i don't want to be the guy that passes out on the couch at you know eight o'clock every night you know with the 
uh, to you know tequila in his hand. You know, this that's not very. You're hitting me yeah. like really close to. Uh, there's alcoholism in my family, and what you just described is sort of exactly my mindset of like I just don't ever want to be that guy, and, it, and, and it's really shaped my life in a huge way. <laughs> and I've never been drunk in my life, and it's and it really <laughs> and I, I want to like say this is it's not because I'm. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be a teetotaler in response to this. It's just, you know, I didn't like the taste, so I didn't do it. You know, I, that, that's the thing. You know, I'm sure that. It, yeah, holy shit. You know, yeah, so, I've never heard anybody else like uh, talk like that. But that's yeah, that way. Exactly yeah. The same for me. Well, we, brothers. Yeah, we bro. found each other. It's fine. <laughs> it's um, but, you know, it, but that said, you know, like, it, you know, I, I, I smoked cigarettes when I was a kid and I gave it up really quickly. You know, like, and when I say as a kid, this is like we're, we're talking prime, primo, like late 80s, early 90s shit where, you know, a family friend fucking let me smoke cigarettes at their house when I was like 11, 10, 11. Right. <laughs> And, and shit. And so like, and, and I got to the point where I was like really inhaling and, you know, all that stuff. And I just said, okay, I, and I was done with it. Um, that said, I, you know, I, I think my addictions are a little bit more in now in like, you know, I fucking, I'm addicted to mobile shit on my phone. I'm addicted to, to, to watching, you know, to playing video games. I'm addicted to that stuff and I can acknowledge that, but you know, I've never had that, that, um, that pre primo addiction, but I've seen what addiction can do to those around you. You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, I, I know Scott, you have a different history with, with that, but, um, uh, I do. And I, I appreciated that the new Hellraiser uh, was an addiction story. It seems to me that the people that have complaints about the new Hellraiser, uh, the Mm -hmm. the primary complaint is that it's not horny enough. Right. And Mm -hmm. my thing, my thing with that is that, I don't know how you could have told this particular story and made it organically horny. And I, I, and in fact, I sort of have a theory about this. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that Please. when the original, the, like, let's, let's say the first few Hellraisers uh, in particular, the ones that really put a stamp on the consciousness, because I, I mm-hmm. think a lot of the sequels are largely unseen by most people. Yeah. Um, the, the the bondage gear, the leather stuff that that the Cenobites wear, and and especially the first the first movie is very horny, explicitly horny. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that the way the the Cenobites are costumed to the audience at that time probably meant something different than it means yes. now. And I've seen uh, David say something similar to this in an interview, and I think the decision to uh eliminate that in the new one and introduce this really cool, really fucking cool idea of having their own flesh be their leather basically mm-hmm. um had maybe had the unintended side effects of removing some of that horny feeling from casual viewers of this franchise sure sure yeah i think that i think you're you're so far i think i agree with everything you're saying which is weird because they're te- they're more naked now <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean that's naked, but when you see a guy in a leather apron, it communicates a sort a a certain intention, you know, and that's a different intention than someone whose skin is wound around their body or, you know, being like pulled with that fucking contraption that uh, uh, God damn it, what's his name? Voight. Yeah. Uh, that what's the actor's name? Goran. Yeah. Uh. I forget what I was saying. 
What you were saying is that it's not a failure of the horniness, it's a failure of the audience's imagination of what can be horny. I get it, Scott. No, That's really right. And, and, and I think there's, there's some... Obviously, horniness is not what's driving the Riley character. It is what's driving the Voight character. Yes. Um, but 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 in terms of recognizing what's horny, I think, you know, like the Cenobites, yeah, they're not wearing black leather, but but you know, and and I don't want to spoilers for Hellraiser, but there's a sequence where Pinhead is, you know, fingering a a pin that looks like a clit inside of somebody and it's making them scream and and sing and then, you know, they they kind of spray all over the chatterer's face. Like it, mm-hmm. the interaction of the Cenobites with the humans is very sensual, very erotically charged, you know, has a lot of imagery that is, you know, explicitly er- meant to be erotic. Um, and it's just not necessarily, well, we're going to, I'm going to fuck your brother-in-law on the wedding dress. Like that. It, it takes yeah. It's, that well, but I, what, yeah. What, what, and what at else the end of the day, at it, the end of the day, mm-hmm. everyone has their own perception of what horny means. 100%. You know? And, and so that's, yes. that's creating the disparity here. But really, my greater theory was just that about the the costumes. I remember hearing about this, you know, like about the the leather flesh thing um, <laughs> before I'd seen the movie and was like, that's the coolest fucking idea I've ever heard, you know. Um, and I just think that I think maybe that's an unintended consequence. Uh, uh, these complaints are an unintended consequence of that. And I think that. It's it's indicative of some people just see black leather and they think horny, you know, um, there are I do think there are yeah. some viewers like that out there. And yeah, we removed some of the iconography, but I guess just what Luke's saying and what I'm saying is I think like we were conscious of of the choices and wanting it to be, you know, uh, good on as many levels as possible. So, you know, mm-hmm. the horniness quotient, I mean, I would argue we probably have nearly as much on screen sex as the original Hellraiser movie does, if that means anything. And like Luke's saying, right. I mean, the Cenobites are like, you know, we define certain aspects of them differently or, or more, you know, uh, uh, fulsome and whatever than the other movie does. And obviously we represent the, the, the visual presentation of them is different, but like, the you know the sort of ideology of them i think is the same both like their ideology mm-hmm. as characters as people who you know sorry people jesus as as entities you know beings who who are seeking these experiences and stuff i mean that is at the fundamental core the same thing and 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 we're demonstrating that like you know what we see is uh, a cool way for them to do that and for them to prepare themselves, you know, to, to do these things that they do in the way that they do them and stuff. And all of that does come, you know, with, with informed with a sort of BDSM perspective and, you know, we're There's a lot of, you know, leaps we had to make on this to, to, you know, to both tell the story correctly, but also, you know, to meet with people's various expectations about the thing. And I think that no, in the same way that can can play in the narrative in ways beyond just yes, black lives. Yes. In the same way that we didn't make the, the choices we made about gender and sexuality and stuff in the movie without, you know, so a lot of thought and care and consultation with people. We we didn't make the choices we made about the visual representation of the Cenobites or the use of BDSM imagery or themes without, you know, thinking that stuff carefully and talking to people, you know, consulting with people who you know, knew more about that and stuff than we did necessarily. So, I mean, a lot of effort went in. If it's not horny enough for people, then, you know, I'm sorry that there's this great thing called Pornhub. You know, you can, there's a lot of ways. You can, <laughs> I mean, you yeah, know, it works great. I don't I know if you guys heard of this thing, but like, it's wild. <laughs> I think that, 
I think in the face of everything else that's going on in the movie, it's it's like a such a minor like if if that's the complaint, what did you want? Just more nudity? Did you want another yeah, sex exactly. scene? A line item know? for and, it. Yeah, please. Yeah, that's I probably I, need a sequel. We'll just we'll <laughs> we'll throw more nudity yeah. in there next time. I send send all, all of sequel. your complaints to the King cast. They'll forward them to I, us. We'll take all I, of them. I, after after so many years of underwhelming Hellraiser movies, for us to get this and then to be like, could have used more titties. Like, I don't know what the fuck to tell you, man. Like, I really don't well, know what to we tell knew, you. We knew that was a possibility. I mean, you know that going in when you're sure. doing this kind of thing, because we're fans of, you know, the various genre properties and we've got opinions. It was, we already talked about our dark hat or dark tower, like, you know, prejudgments and expectations and stuff. So we're not unfamiliar to that. And I think like, you know, with this, it was always, I mean, we were definitely, like I said, you know, I mean, I, I will, one story that's true is the, the meeting that we got the job the conversation in the room got to the point where with the head of spyglass, we, you know, asked directly about budget and about, you know, uh, where it would be filmed. And then, you know, ultimately got a clear answer about, you know, is this an R rated movie? You know, can we have sex and violence as needed for the story? You know, is this, and he was like, it's a Hellraiser movie. What else would it be? And, and you'd think that it's such an obvious answer, except that Luke and I know from a decade prior of being around town, talking to people that that was not a, like a foregone conclusion for everybody who thought they could make a Hellraiser movie or show. There was PG 13 Hellraiser, Hellraiser without sex, Hellraiser without kink, Hellraiser without like graphic violence. All of these things were brought up in professional meetings to us over the years. And we walked <laughs> away from a lot of those straight up. Like we walked yeah. away from PG 13 Hellraisers because we're like, we're not going to do that. That's not Hellraiser. And so we, we knew going in the rough parameters of the story, the rough parameters of the schedule we were on because of the right stuff that took up so much ink in the press you know, we knew, I mean, we came on with a, with a, with a deadline of like having to, you know, do production before a certain time so that the rights would happen, which is what every Hellraiser movie's ever been up against. Right. Except for this one was like a legit one from the beginning. So, I mean, like, you know, we jumped on this train because we'd seen a bunch of other ones leave the station with no you know, driver basically. And it was like, yeah, we're not going to fuck around with those stupid Hellraiser movies, but this one, we really saw the chance. So, I mean, it's like, you know, again, I think, you know, we made the, I'm not, I feel really good about the movie we made, honestly. Like I, the reviews as well. You should, the, you know. Yeah, I, I think it's good. It works for Scott Wampler, you know. <laughs> like it, I mean, we we got what we what we you know we did can, the best uh, we could. You know? I can feel our clock ticking here, so I do want to like come back to end a little bit before the end, and just I want to sure. just ask: Did anybody else notice who wrote the article? Uh, about the sister's suicide at the end. I didn't, but I, I'm going to pull it up oh, and no. see. No, I literally finished, like, reread it this morning, and, uh, and now I feel like I missed something really well, huge. No, it's not huge, but it's it's Julia Shumway from Under the Dome. Oh. oh. Interesting. That's so cool. There's your little connective universe thing. Always. Yeah, which is super fun. And then I also noticed that that uh, in description, somebody pronounced the poet uh, Yeats as Yeats, which is from the stand, which is uh, the colonel is, is like in his mind, he's talking about the poem by Yeats and he keeps on saying it. And the other character notices that he's like talking about Yeats. I never would. I never would have picked up on the Julia Shumway thing. Pretty fun, right? I, I, I yeah, read the name fun. Of the like, wait, who do I know? Oh, that's from Under the Dome. Yeah, yeah. I only you had that. You weren't going to let this conversation go without showing off. That, I had that to. I had to get. Yeah, I had, to, had, to, do had to do it. <laughs> do you think that N could be adapted? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah, I think it could be. I mean, it's interesting. I think for us, the biggest challenge would be just ha how to make it not like the other things that we've been talking about that clearly were somewhat inspired or related to in some right. ways. But, but, sure. I, but it is, it's a different feeling. And I think it's weird because it's like, it even has like the bridge jump symmetry, which has some super dark times relevance for me. Like when I was reading it, I was like, yeah, this has got like a lot of little flavors of things we've done. And in my head, I was like, I wonder if there's not a way to do it you know, because we tend to like, I mean, we've never filmed in Maine, but we, we've we made two movies in upstate New York, you know, Nighthouse and Super Dark Times, and, and we it's, tend to I like I mean, it sort of feels vibe. like it would be better as, as a short form thing if you were to do, you know, an anthology or an episode of television. I, I wonder about like sure. a full 90 minute version and would it, could it sustain and should it sustain, you know, expansion you know, I, this I, stuff's hard. It's hard because that becomes so much of what's charming mm -hmm. is the specific delivery method that the information's coming in. And it's not always easy to replicate that in a movie right. to, to the same kind of satisfying degree because you can't do it, right? But you it's a narrative to, device that you can synthesize on some level. But. I, mean, I think you'd have to find a way to, to make the audience, the characters' anxieties shared by the audience uh, in a big well, way. You no, know, I... I I think Scott hit hit upon it earlier where the way to adapt this is to take that story that we got and make it the first half of the movie. Uh, right? And sure. then the second half of the movie is, is sure. somebody failing to do this and what happens <laughs> when, when it gets out. Right? Oh, I would watch that. I mean, that's not a bad idea. That. Yeah. I think that that's the way you go. And, uh, hmm. Hmm. you know, yeah. If you, if you guys, you're welcome. you're welcome. I want to thanks in the credits <laughs> yeah. when this happened. Hollywood, listen to me. Would um, yeah. if you were getting like handed over the keys to King's entire bibliography, oh, man. and you could adapt uh -huh. one thing as a team, uh, it's going to be the Dark Tower. We are, I can figure this one out already. Well, let's okay, we can let's just take that one let's, off. Let's yeah. set aside yeah. the Dark Tower. Right. Let's set aside mm -hmm. the, like a one and a one and done movie. Uh, what do you think it would be? Novels as well as short stories? Sure. Oh, fuck. Mm, fuck. Um, I mean, we've talked about different ones. I mean, we've tried for a bunch. I mean, I'm trying to list, think of the list of ones that we, we did try the, for. We, we tried to chase Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. I know that's mm, a mutual... We, uh, we got, we got kind of semi-close on Gerald's game without ever actually having official conversations, but a director we knew was like in talks to do it. And he wanted, and he he wasn't really a writer, so there was like a minute where that was in conversation, but that was way before the Flanagan thing or anything. That one, I, that the the restrictions of that one were super appealing, and at the time before Flanagan did it, that might have been my answer just for pure, like I, I get I get attracted to the unique challenges, but I'm gonna keep thinking for a real answer. What else you got, Luke? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I love I love all the big ones. I love Desperation. That would be hard to mm -hmm. do. But that, I love that was it. one of the first ones that came to mind for me. It's like, that's one of those ones that like, it's such a good beginning, but because of how mythological it gets, it would be hard to do it standalone. But the, the setup is so strong that it's like, I remember when I was reading that one, Luke, I was like texting you being like, holy shit, like, you know, this, yeah. this would, well, we got to do this one. And it, hmm. If I had to decide immediately and we couldn't say Dark Tower, I guess I would say Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon because yeah. we, we, had that, we had that movie, Stephanie, and, and for a number of reasons, you know, it just ends up not being exactly the story that you that you wanted to tell. And and I think Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon kind of lives in that space. And it inspired it, for sure. Because that was one yeah. of the early ones you gave me. I read that one on an airplane to Jerusalem yeah. 
or someone or two had to tell of you, I guess, one time. And I was like, holy shit, we should make this. And then like a, like a year or two later, I, like we wrote the first draft of Stafford. But also, fuck so it. I like, remember that, yeah. And I would love an epic stand. I would love the stand told oh, yeah. Lord of the Rings style in, in right. chronological order where we have all of our different characters come together by the end of the thing and we, we love them individually and then we start to fall in love with them together. And I mean, I still think that is... Yet to I mean, we're, what, we're just, look, just we're looking at a t- ten-year ticking clock, right, or something. So, like, yeah, look, you it, know, like, at least after this last one, I think. But I you're mean, by then, if, years. If, if Hollywood still exists, I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe you know, because it's like, but you know, because you never know with these things. I mean, stuff goes and it comes back around. I mean, we we got back on Hellraiser a complete like almost decade cycle of development at later. So you know, again, it's possible. Mm. But I'll do any of them, man. I'll do Tommy Knockers if I've got to. You know, anything. <laughs> Let me do it. Anybody. I have a friend who actually did a draft on Tommy Knockers for oh James Wan. Tommy and, Knockers uh, is, is the I think it's the only one, the only Stephen King novel oh, I've ever read where I've been like, is this done yet? Like, are we? Are yeah. <laughs> you, you, another Wait, another you and I. Is it, is it, is it Jeremy Slater, Slater that did it or no? Yeah, Slater. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, yeah, Slater's great. He was he was on the set of Stephanie with us. We talked about Stephen King with him some, I believe, as well. He's a good oh yeah, guy. Slater's been on the show. I, I play Overwatch oh. with Slater almost every night. I, so, I haven't yeah. seen we haven't seen him in forever. I mean, because we didn't really we only really like were around him for like a couple weeks when we were making that movie. Akiva had him around right. to help, and it was so we just got a chance to like hang out with him a little there. But uh, stayed in touch with him over the years. But great, great guy. Good dude works. Uh, just all the time. The, 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 he's Bust one of the his most ass. Hardest right working now. man in Hollywood, yeah. that guy. Oh, it's and, and, and it's always so, like, he's, yeah, like, back in the day, it was like, he just cranks these things out and they would be so, like, dismal about their possibilities and then you just kept seeing him fail upward and it's like, man, you know, <laughs> like, at a certain point, you got to recognize you got skilled. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. Come, come on, man, yeah. I mean, I think what people should know, uh, if they watched his uh, Exorcist show, which he was mm-hmm, one yeah. of, like, the main oh, creative yeah. voice, on that show was so much better than it had any fucking right to be. Oh my god! And, no, uh, you know that my favorite Slater story is that one of the one day on the set of Stephanie, he like was in a bad mood and bummed a cigarette off me. He'd like quit smoking, and we were talking, and and I mentioned because he had been announced as part of an Exorcist reboot movie or something, or maybe it was a show initially first as well. But there had been an earlier iteration that had been announced that I'd heard about, and I asked him, and at the time it had fallen through, and he told me the whole sob story of like. And he was like, you know, smoking a cigarette. It was like the like exorcist. Haven't heard that name in a long time. Kind of like the meme or whatever. And he literally was right. just like, yep, it was my dream project. The one that got away. And he told me the whole fucking thing about the rights and this and this and this. And I was just like, man, and it, it like broke my heart. I was like watching this guy just really go through it. And then it was like, yeah, just a couple years later, again, things come back. And I remember emailing and being like, holy fucking shit, dude. And, and I watched the, yeah, I, I don't know if I finished the second season, but like that first season was fucking incredible. And I would say I was yeah. really, really happy for him. Like having seen the genuine heartbreak is like, yeah, that's a good, there are good Hollywood stories like that to be found. For sure. Well, we thank you for, uh, for being here today for this sprawling conversation. No, <laughs> that was sometimes about N and, uh, also allowed a lot of other King things. This, this is more is... about N than I thought once we like hit the 40 minute mark and we hadn't really talked about it. This is ended up becoming way more about N than I, I thought about. I thought it was at a certain point during the I, chat. So I think it was elegantly uh, enmeshed in, into the, uh, yes. into the it was a conversation, which is mm-hmm. yeah, it's what the show's supposed to be. So, so um, 
it feels silly to even ask this because I feel like everyone knows, but uh, let's uh, let's tell people where they can find Hellraiser, where they can find you, your other work. You know, this is this is your moment to to go into promo mode. So please do so. Hellraiser is on Hulu. Uh, Super Dark Times is somewhere. I think it's on Shutter right now, and maybe yeah, maybe on Hulu as well. Honestly, I can't remember. Maybe. Um, the Night House is still on HBO Max. Go now, whatever HBO is. Discovery Plus, whatever whatever HBO <laughs> is right now. Um, Find it before they Batgirl it. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. <laughs> those are those are the those the big stuff, right? Yeah. 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 No, we're Absolutely. both on, on apologies Twitter. to anybody internationally. I don't I we don't really know what the deal is in terms God, of how we're international uh, yeah. plans because of Hulu and I am so heartbroken and feel so bad for anybody in the, in no, the UK it, it, out loud, you know, Clive's you know, an, an English author and you know, all the UK fans can't even fucking see the thing and that's a real bummer, but Yeah, this is like if uh like it chapter two came out and they're like, Hey, sorry, nobody in Maine can watch this. <laughs> yes, exactly. No, it's, it's, it's fucked. And I, I do, uh, yeah, the expressing sympathy. Like I, we sort of saw it coming just because of, you know, again, we came into the nature of this like merger thing and, and it was all happening, you know, in 2020. And, and I happened to be living outside of the country at the beginning of the pandemic. And so like I witnessed firsthand what it's like when you're, you know, I was in Argentina and they don't have like any streaming services other than Netflix and yeah. I became aware of this and we started asking these questions really early on. But again, a lot of this shit comes down to merger stuff that is way above any of our levels. And it has to yeah. do with, you know, battles of time. You know, we mentioned kaiju fights. That's I, I think it will. It will. It will. And it's on its way. So, yeah, to take take heart, uh, everybody. Yeah, we really, um, we're really, really, you know, we feel bad for that. And anybody who's pissed off, we get it. You can be pissed off, you know, that's, that's cool. But hopefully. But only at Bruckner. It is, it is Bruckner's fault. It is not. Yeah, yeah but just blame Bruckner. Yeah. <laughs> well, gentlemen, um, thank you so much for being here today. Love the movie. I hope all of our listeners go out and watch it. I hope you get to make another one. And uh, we, we hope to have you back on the show someday. And yeah, we'd love to. This has been super fun. Anytime. Many thanks to Ben Collins and Luke Piotrowski. That was a really fun episode. Like, uh, For you real. know, listen, we, we love all of our children here. And uh, but there's every once in a while we hit one where it's just like, oh, wow. So this one ended up being a little bit of everything. It's a little chaotic. It's a little we talk about horny stuff. We talk about deep analyzation of Stephen King work. We talk about movie kaiju stuff. Shit. It's, yeah, kaiju shit. It's like all a free episode. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, and is the backbone. But yeah, you got a lot of you got a lot of mileage out of this one. We covered a lot of ground. Um, loved recording that one. And uh, I think the listeners are really going to enjoy it. This is, in my opinion, a top shelf KingCast episode making that uh, official right now. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be getting back from Bangor. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. We have the big banger and Bangor event. I keep almost tripping over those words. Uh, this Bangor week. and banger. Yes. And we we are going to uh, drop an episode that we recorded some time ago, but we're waiting for uh, a specific thing to happen. That thing has happened. And uh, I am pleased to tell you that uh, next week's guest is a how do I put this? An author of some repute. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a big time. Uh, he's a character. This gentleman. <laughs> and uh 
We were not entirely sure what we were getting into when we uh, welcomed him onto the show. And uh, I am thrilled to report that he over-delivered on his first <laughs> KingCast appearance. I think that um, you will be hearing from this guest again. We loved him. We loved having him. Love is real, by the way, Eric. And I, I think people are going to be pretty excited to to hear that he's, <laughs> he's um, coming onto the show to talk to yeah. us about uh, if it bleeds. That's what I was getting to, the fucking yes. title. Yeah. yeah uh, right. Next week's episode featuring this guest that I've been rambling about is If It Bleeds, and uh, we are going to go through every single story in it with this guest, who also provides a unifying theory of all four stories in this book. Wait, is it mm. five stories? Four stories, I think. I think you had it right the first time. You shouldn't have second-guessed yourself. Don't doubt yourself, baby. You got this. Okay. Well, if it's wrong, we can edit it out later. <laughs> So Pop Pop doesn't get yelled at. But that's half of the fun. Um, yes. and, and so, yeah, even though you're right, we are about to leave for Maine. But that doesn't mean we're not giving the patrons their bonus episode this week. And no. we, we have an interesting one for Friday. We have an interview with the author of that Stephen King cookbook, a lady by the name of Teresa Carl Sanders. And so we talked to her about just how the hell one puts together a Stephen King theme cookbook how she got into the cookbook industry in the first place and just kind of grilled her about some of the best recipes in that book. We've interviewed a number of people on the show over the years and, and during our time as, as a, uh, you know, fledgling journalists and what have you. And uh, <laughs> I got to tell you that this, I have never interviewed a cookbook author before. And that was quite the experience. Yeah. And, and you, it, it was really interesting too, because Stephen King, for whatever reason himself has taken a big, I don't know, liking to this book book he has tweeted about it a lot he's made jokes about his uh, microwave salmon in relation to this book he's he's written the foreword for it so it's like he's he's way more involved with this than legit king biographies and stuff that have come out it's a fun it's, book yeah it's, uh, i can it's, imagine it, it appealing to him like absolutely that. yeah so we yeah so stay tuned this friday over at our patreon for that interview and yes of course we bring up corn and ask if there is a corn dish in there um yeah so if you want to listen to that one go on over to patreon.com slash the king cast and we'll sign up that's true folks and uh we'll see some of you in bangor later this week and uh everyone else we'll see you well we'll see you on friday and next wednesday as we always do as always bye Adios. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director. And editing is done by yours truly. Mm-hmm.